This evening we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you go to somebody's house, and you see that they've got posted somewhere some sort of list of rules for the family. Sometimes they're serious. Make sure you turn off the lights and the TV. Don't punch your brother. Sometimes they list character attributes, like keep your promises, or laugh hard and play hard. Sometimes they're sarcastic, like house rules, this is my house and I make the rules. Sometimes they're humorous. We don't light people on fire, not even pretend. Or no fighting before mom has coffee. So all of these lists of rules have their purpose, don't they? Now, of course, in some cases, they may be there to remind the kids and maybe even the adults of what it means to live in that particular family and what the expectations are. Sometimes it's there to tell the family who they're expected to be. So not just actions, but also qualities or who they should aspire to be. And sometimes they're there for visitors to give them a taste of who this family wants to be known as. Well, Peter in this letter has written family rules for the church family. Now, this is a genre of ancient literature known today as a house table and or a household code. And, and Peter has written some family rules addressing slaves in verse 2, chapter or chapter 2, verses 18 and following, for wives in chapter 3, verse 1, and husbands, chapter 3, verse 7. And although the ancient household codes were restricted generally to uh, codes of conduct for husbands, slaves, wives, and children, and so In a technical sense, these verses 8 through 12 don't constitute a part of a household code, and yet the parallels are striking. In each of these paragraphs leading up to this, Peter has has been addressing different groups of people directly, and here he offers an address to all of you, all of you in the household of faith. So there are similarities between this and other elements of a household code. And essentially what Peter is doing in this paragraph is he's teaching the whole family of God what it means to conduct yourself as the family of God. 
For the church indeed is a family. In 1 Timothy 5, we read in in admonition, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so who are we as a family? What does it mean? What does it look like for us to live out our identity as God's family in the world? We find that Peter's reference to calling in verse 9 is so instructive and central to the way that we are to live as a family. For this shows that this conduct, this conduct as God's family that Peter is describing is a fundamental concern for God. For just as he called you out of darkness and into light, as he called you and thereby united you to Christ, so now we see that God calls you not only to an identity, but also to a task. And so God calls you to be a blessing to others. And so we'll look at this in three phases. First, we look at how to be a blessing in verses 8 through the beginning of 9. And then at the center of verse 9, the call to be a blessing. And then from the end of verse 9 to verse 12, God's promises for those who bless. How to be a blessing, the call to be a blessing, and God's promises for those who are a blessing. And so first we're going to look at how to be a blessing. And here first we see that what what Peter lists in verse 8 are first a group of character attributes followed by a list of actions at the beginning of verse 9. Now, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the way the ESV has translated this. You can see that unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind are all character attributes. And yet in the Greek, it's even a little more clear because the Greek would be literally translated, finally, all of you, be one in mind, be sympathetic, be brother-loving, be tender-hearted, be humble-minded. And so these are character attributes. They're not just actions that are, that are worked outwardly, but these are cultivated inwardly in your heart. And it seems that these character attributes are particularly meant to be cultivated inwardly in your heart's attitude towards your brothers and sisters in the church. For they, it refers to unity of mind. Well, we can only have true unity of mind with those who are also believers in the gospel of Christ. It refers to brotherly love. Well, only those of us who are in Christ are true brothers and sisters. Outside we have neighbors, but inside the church we have brothers and sisters. And so these are primarily rules of the household, how to conduct yourself within the family of faith. And these are all character attributes that are intended to make the church stand out in a dog-eat-dog society with nonstop competition, with people continually seeking to gain honor and avoid shame, always looking to one-up each other. A description that would seem familiar to Peter's audience as well as it does to us today. And so first it says to be to have unity of mind, to be united in the purpose of the gospel. Every one of you is different. You have 
your own personality. You have your own strengths. You have your own weaknesses. You have your own skills. But, but you press on all together for one goal. For the goal of glory in Christ. With one message. The message of the Gospel. And turning to one word. God's word in the Scriptures. Just the same way that soldiers in a battlefield all work towards a common objective, even though they have different roles. They have different equipment, even. Different armaments and different tasks to accomplish. We're one in mind, just the same way that Christ was single-minded within Himself. As He was relentlessly focused on going to the cross to die for His people. And as He continually directed His disciples' attention to this fact, to His mission to accomplish redemption. We are to be sympathetic, to share in one another's sufferings, and to feel one another's sufferings with them. To welcome and embrace the so-called burdensome or needy people. To take on one another's burdens and to take care of each other, and to do so gladly not with impatience or eye-rolling, but to take care of one another with love in our hearts. As Christ also took on our burdens, he took on to himself the common infirmities of life. We read in Isaiah 53 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows firsthand what it is to live in, uh, in, in, in difficult times. And he even knows what it is to suffer and endure temptation. As it says in Hebrews 2.18, he himself has suffered when tempted, so he is able to help those who are being tempted. You're to, be, to, to have brotherly love, to have love for your brothers and sisters in the church. And we know that love is ultimately expressed in giving of yourself for one another. It's not primarily a feeling. It's not emotional, but it takes action and it makes sacrifices for one another. The church is a family. The church isn't just a club. It's not a place where we can meet other nice people and have a nice German-themed lunch on Reformation Day and have a nice religious experience. No, the church is a family where we gather as one to worship the living God. And so everybody here in the church is your brother or sister, just the same way as your natural family is your family. So it is in the church. And we see that Christ gave himself up for you as the ultimate expression of love. As it says in Ephesians 5, to walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You're to be tender-hearted, which stands in contrast to being hard-hearted toward one another. And you can see the parallels between the tender-heartedness and sympathy from a couple of items ago. You're to be affected by your brother and sister's needs. John, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 refers to the opposite uh, action, the opposite heart attitude where he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet 
closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? We even see Christ's love in action as he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he wept that his friend had to experience death in the first place. It says here, to have a humble mind, not to think so highly of yourself, but to be ready to defer to one another. Now, in the ancient world, humility was not really thought of as a virtue. Only the menial people were expected to be humble, but the people who had a high social standing were expected, you know, in appropriate ways to be boastful and to, to toot their own horn. Everybody wanted to stand on top of the pile. Everybody wanted to be the alpha. We ourselves always want to get the last word in, win every debate, answer every insult. And yet how different Christ was. Even at times, as he was going to, to, to the cross, at times simply being silent before his accusers, even though he had done no wrong and he was perfectly innocent, and righteous in all that he ever did. And yet, it says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you see these character attributes that God is calling you to cultivate inwardly. And then we see in the first part of verse 9, actions in response to evil. And here the reference is particularly to the way that we respond to those who challenge us and accuse us from outside the church. For the way to deal with opponents is not to take the gloves off and to give a verbal or even physical beatdown, but instead to use a different script entirely. It says here, do not repay evil for evil. No matter how you may be treated, There is no warrant for the believer to respond to evil treatment with evil treatment of your own. Now, revenge is the world's way of dealing with offenses that are suffered. But that's not the Christian's way. Jesus teaches us all not to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You have nothing to fear no matter what evil you suffer at the hands of another. Now, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that they don't deserve whatever retribution they may have. But you have nothing to fear from them. And you can leave it to your heavenly Father and your King to take care of all of the wrongs that are done to you. He will certainly take care of you. And you will find blessing in not repaying evil with evil. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And then Peter goes even further, saying not to repay reviling for reviling. And there are plenty of synonymous words that would also work equally well as translations it could be do not repay insult for insult do not repay abuse for abuse we we revel 
in, in being able to turn back an insult on somebody. You're probably aware of the, uh, of, of the story that Lady Nancy Astor would once said to Winston Churchill. Prime Minister, if I were your, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your, in your coffee. And he says to her, my dear lady, if I were your husband, I would drink it. And we get a laugh out of it. And it is funny. But is this the example of Christian life and conduct? Peter says no. So not only are evil actions forbidden, but so are insulting words. You don't need to be the one who comes out on top in such an exchange. We see from earlier, from chapter 2 of this letter, Peter writes of Jesus that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So these are the actions. These are the actions and the the character qualities that God is calling you to as members of his family. And as we look at this central part of verse 9, we see that there is in fact a call to go beyond this and to be a blessing to others. Peter writes that on the contrary, you are to bless. You are to act contrary to the world. Now a key text is in Uh, chapter 1, verse 15 of this same letter, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God calls you to salvation, but calls you to act out that salvation in certain ways. And so, remember the setting of this letter. The people who are reading Peter's letter are being accused of all kinds of vile things. They are potentially losing jobs and, and losing inheritances on account of their faith in Christ. We don't know, but they may have, people may have been suffering violence in the streets, it seems quite likely. But what Peter says here is that even if you oppose the falsehoods that the world puts out there, even if you oppose the lies of this world, if you do it using the world's methods, You are not acting contrary to the world, but you are acting with the world. So what specifically are we called to do? It's one thing to eschew returning violence for for violence and insult for insult. God calls you to bless. And the Greek word behind this English word bless refers in particular to to seeking God's blessing for your enemies in prayer. Not to seeking that their wicked ways would be profitable to them, but simply that God would be kind to them out of his own goodness. And of course, that God would bring them to repentance, just as God brought you to repentance by his kindness, as we read in Romans 2.4. And so you are to seek the good of all people, even those people who do you wrong. You are there to seek their good. 
In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen, one of the church's first deacons and its first martyr, he is being stoned for the testimony that he has given to Christ. And as he dies, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, presumably there was a large contingent of people there who never repented, who died in their sins. But in the first verse of chapter 8, we see that a certain man named Saul was there, approving of this stoning, approving of this execution, this violent execution that he thought he was doing for God. And we know what happened to Saul. He became Paul. As he says, the least of all the apostles, as to one untimely born, the chief of sinners. And yet God brought him grace. God answered Stephen's prayer in the case of this Saul who became Paul. For you were called to this. God called you to faith in Christ, even though you yourself are evil. And he has blessed you beyond all measure. And so God offers you forgiveness of your sins on account of Christ's goodness, because you have no goodness to offer. There's nothing in you that you have to offer to God so that he should be good to you. But when you embrace Christ by faith, when you accept that there is nothing good in you and all that there is good that you could have is found in Christ, God forgives you your sins and makes you right in his sight. And here's the thing. Despite your evil, every character attribute that we just discussed is exactly how Christ has acted toward you. He was single-minded in accomplishing redemption, full of sympathy for your sin, your pain, your weakness, and your grief. He loves you as your elder brother, and he, he teaches you that his father is your father too. He is tender and gentle toward you as a shepherd with his flock. He is humble toward you. He, he came down from heaven for you rather than staying in heaven, haughty and aloof. And even now, when you continue to struggle with sin and repay him sometimes. You repay his good with evil. And you repay him insult for his blessing. He continues to pour out his blessing on you. He continues to pray on your behalf to the Father. And he strengthens you so that you may serve him better. And so God is transforming you through his Holy Spirit so that you can bless and care for others as Christ has blessed and cared for you. There's almost nothing more disheartening than to see someone who claims to follow Christ and yet acts contrary to him in these ways, full of unkindness, full of hostility, seeking a pound of flesh from those who hurt them. There's almost nothing more disheartening, and I know because I used to be one of those people. I mean, sometimes I still am. Let's, let's, not, let's not lie here. But God is good. And he is faithful to grow us and to grow you. 
so that where you fall short, he continues to provide strength. He continues to forgive you. And so do reflect on where you've been, who you used to be, but also give thanks and glory to God for how he has grown you and how he has changed you. Yes, it can hurt to bless those who curse you. But this is your calling. It's integral to the faith to which you have been called. We've seen how Christ himself suffered this evil on your behalf. For in 1 Peter chapter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so through you, God is fulfilling his ancient promise that he made to Abraham. He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And so God is calling you to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters here in the church, and especially to those adversaries outside. And so to further encourage you to live out the gospel by blessing others, God gives promises that you can live by, for he promises blessing to those who bless others. And so here at the very end of verse 9, Peter introduces this concept that you may obtain a blessing. And then he picks up an important Old Testament proof text for those who bless. Now first, it says that you may obtain or that you may inherit a blessing. For God is pleased when you bless others, and especially if they do not repay you in kind. Now truly, you do not earn your salvation this way. You don't earn your right standing with God. But don't think that you can be saved apart from giving this kind of evidence to the salvation that he's worked in you. But God does make a promise. He rewards those who do good. And so Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So God indeed offers great blessings to those who pour out their blessings on others. And we turn to this Old Testament proof text. Now, uh, Peter here is citing Psalm 34. And it probably would have been good for me to highlight this psalm throughout this sermon series because Peter returns to this passage again and again and again with quotations and allusions and thematic parallels. In, in, it, would, it would only be going a little too far to say that this letter is a commentary on Psalm 34. So David, before, so, so David had been anointed king, but he had not yet taken the throne. And King Saul was after his skin. And so David was on the lamb out in Philistine territory in a very dangerous place. He was in the court of the Philistine king Abimelech. 
And so Jesus to, or sorry, David to save his own skin uh, pretends to be insane to, so that Abimelech would understand this guy is no threat to me and let him go. And so this psalm, as, we set, as I said, it sets the agenda of Peter's letter. Because just as the Lord delivered David through his sojourn among the Philistines, God was also saving these Christians in Asia Minor through their own afflictions. And he also saves you through your own afflictions in this earthly sojourn. And so here, Peter cites David to show what the blessing is, how to obtain it, and then closes with a further reflection on what that blessing is. And so first it says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. God promises life and good days to those who are a blessing. And he especially promises in the life to come that you will see good days. You will have life to the fullest. Your dead body will be raised again from the grave. And whatever hurts or injuries you have suffered between now in, in this life, will be, will, you will be made perfectly whole in the life to come. But then there's this list of behaviors. Let him keep his tongue from evil. So do not curse others. And, and this word evil doesn't even refer so much to speaking uh, uh, bad words or, or swear words or insulting other people and things like that. It, it refers to spreading anything bad about other people. Now, there are some narrow exceptions to when uh, you may spread a bad report against somebody. For example, uh, to warn somebody from listening to a, somebody who teaches evil or to protect uh, the innocent from the evil intentions of another person. But whether these bad reports are true or false, it is important to refrain wherever possible from spreading them. And we even need to think about things like the ways that we insult people when telling the truth of them. While recognizing that you know, even a straightforward, anodyne sort of truth-telling can be received as an insult unfairly. But James, in chapter 3 of his letter, says, With our tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse those made in the likeness of God. How easily we unwittingly curse God by cursing those on whom he has put his image. And so the Westminster Larger Catechism speaks in its unfolding of the Ninth Commandment. It speaks of our obligations to promote the good name of our neighbor, to have sorrow for and to cover their infirmities, to be ready to receive a good report about them, to be unwilling to receive an evil report, to refuse to rejoice in their disgrace, and so on. So do not spread an evil report. Do not 
do keep your tongue from evil. And it goes on that such a person keeps his lips from speaking deceit. Now, I forget in which previous sermon we talked about this, but this word that is translated deceit, it, it refers in particular to the use of your words in a sneaky or an underhanded way to gain an advantage to yourself. So things like misrepresenting a posi- something that your opponent believes so as to make them seem all the more ridiculous. Pumping up your own qualities uh, or your own credentials. Playing with the plain meaning of words or bluffing. Twisting your own words. Twisting things that you've said in the past, past that maybe weren't so good. Or twisting the words of your adversaries so that you can look good, so that you can elevate your status. That's forbidden, according to God. And it says, let him turn away from evil and do good. And so now we turn from speech to action. And so this is not only to do good generally, but to do good for others. We already spoke about how blessing in verse 9 refers primarily to praying on behalf of others. But here we see that, that there is also not only prayer, but also acting for the benefit of others. I think in such a highly, uh, highly educated society where, where we, we treasure gaining knowledge, we tend to think that having our minds right is enough. To have the right opinions about things is good enough. But this passage tells us that it isn't. Now, you have an obligation to take action for the benefit of others. When the people of Israel went into exile in Babylon, God tells them in Jeremiah chapter 29 that, uh, that they are to seek the welfare of the city to which God has sent them into exile and to pray to the Lord on their behalf. He says, for in, your, in their welfare, you will find your welfare. And then we have here, let him seek peace and pursue it. Peace must be pursued. Peace doesn't happen on its own. Conflict is a much more natural state of human affairs. So put out the effort to reconcile with your brothers and sisters. Work within yourself to be thick-skinned, not to sweat the small stuff. And here I'm preaching to myself, honestly. To keep your peace, even when you think you have something to really get in a huff about. Work within yourself to let things go. And when there is something that really needs to be addressed, as it says in Leviticus 19, to reason frankly with one another, to be honest and above board, and to seek the peace and pursue it. So these are family rules for the household of God. Character attributes, the calling to bless those to eschew the use of evil or the use of insults, and so on. And verse 12 contains this final promise, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. God watches out for the people who live this way, people who, who refuse to take vengeance on their own. God will take vengeance, either in the judgment pouring out the sins of the enemies on their own head or on the cross pouring them out on Jesus. 
so that you can be reconciled to your enemies, hopefully in this life, but certainly in the life to come. God will do what is most wise with all the sins of those who hurt you. He will protect you from harm to your soul. And he looks on you with favor. And his ears are open to your prayers. In in verse 7, we read that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers may not be hindered. God will stop his ears to the prayers of those who live wickedly. And his face is against those who do evil. And that's as scary of a prospect as it sounds. It reminded me of a similar passage at the end of Psalm 1, where it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. God will oppose your purposes if your purposes are evil. But he promises great blessing to those who, in Christ's strength, live in righteousness, who look to God for vengeance where it's needed, who do these things, who turn away from evil and do good, who seek peace and pursue it. But you can't do it in your own strength. And yet God has given you a calling. Now we frequently obsess over calling when it comes to what job I should do or what school I should go to. And these are important decisions. But do we obsess over the call that God has given to every one of you in his word? You don't have to wonder about what your calling is when it comes to turning away from evil and doing good, when it comes to seeking peace and pursuing it, when it comes to praying for your enemies. This is your calling. This is the most significant calling that you have. But it's a calling that you can only have any hope of fulfilling in faith. So this is your calling. Follow Jesus in doing good to others and in blessing others just as Christ himself has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call that you have given to us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us so that we may imitate Christ, that we may imitate Christ in doing good for others, in blessing others. For while we were enemies, Christ died for us. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the same heart so that we would be ready even to die if necessary for our brothers and sisters as well as for those who are outside. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.